Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're here today for another one in a series of shows from the National Congress of American Indians. The venue is Denver, Colorado. It's 2018. It's a very special venue because this is the 75th, the 75th anniversary convention. And we've got some tremendous folks who have been joining us here in our virtual studio right in the exhibit hall. Across from me is another such individual, Cecily Engelhart. Cecily, it's great to have you with us. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. You and your team are representing a group called First People's Fund. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be totally honest. You have a very nice booth. Thank you. But I'd never heard of you guys. That's totally fair. So there might be some of my listeners who, for the first time, are hearing of the First People's Fund. What are you guys all about? So I think one of the reasons that you're probably just hearing about us, I I joined this year as the communications manager. Okay. And so I'm helping kind of ramp up our communications and outreach. Excellent. Um, But we have been around for a really long time. Um, First People's Fund is going into um, its 25th year. Wow. Uh, Yeah. So we're going to be getting ready in 2021 to have a really fantastic celebration. Um, And we were going to, you know, kind of start the outreach for that here pretty soon. But the organization basically is focused on uh, supporting and uplifting Native artists to, mm. to help them do the work that they're already doing every day in their communities. Um, and we're Native women-led and have been since the beginning. Uh-huh. Um, so, it, you know, it's a really wonderful, wonderful organization. Uh, and we're very community-centered and so really focusing on, like I mentioned, what are folks already doing in their communities and how can we support that? And we have probably, I think we have close to 10 programs now, um, all very different programs that that are really focused on that goal. We want to hear more about some of those programs and about what you do. But before we do, my listeners always enjoy getting to know the individuals that I'm speaking with. Mm -hmm. So you're speaking about First Nations. Do you have deep roots in Indian country yourself? I do, actually. Um, I was born and raised in South Dakota, uh, but I am Ihankdwan and Oglala. And, um, yeah, growing up kind of shared between both my mom and my dad's family. My mom's uh, mother was from the Pine Ridge Reservation and grew up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad's family is from and still lives on the Yankton Reservation. That's my Hongtawan roots over there on the east side of South Dakota. Um, and both my uh, academic and professional backgrounds have been primarily in American Indian studies, uh, specifically looking at food and media. So kind of interesting intersections there. but I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. Food and media? Food food and media. Really? So really looking at food and um, how, you know, food plays a role in just about everything. I think it's kind of the unrecognized player in everything from um, politics to, you know, building community to identity. Uh, I think it's really connected to a lot of things. And that led me to kind of looking at media as a as a way of kind of investigating and, and digging deeper into the way that people 
um, and their communities relate to food, and it's taken me all over the world, to be honest. So Wow, this is amazing. Now, where would someone go to do such? It's Native American studies. It's been under that umbrella? Yeah, yep. So where did you get your training? So I initially just started at the University of South Dakota focused on American Indian studies and women's studies. Um, and after that, I spent a year in New Zealand at the University of Auckland doing Maori studies and kind of looking at um, some of the food and water rights of Maori people. Uh-huh. Um, and then uh, when I came back, I actually went to the University of California, Santa Cruz for my master's program, social documentation, studying um, kind of the role that food has played in both colonization and reindigenation of communities. Uh-huh. And I interviewed five different individuals, and from there, one of those folks ended up becoming my boss after I left. Really? So you really have a fascinating background, and along with that fascinating background, we now have some native drummers here in the uh, <laughs> in the exhibit area that are adding to the ambiance. But I don't think a lot of people would necessarily make a connection with native studies and foods and how this impacts things. Tell us a little bit more about that. So I think a lot of my interest came from, uh, you know, when you start to kind of dig deep into all the elements of um, Native history, a lot there's often a lot of focus on certain things like treaties or mm-hmm. um, different elements that are super important. But one thing that really struck me was some of the images of buffalo skulls and the decimation of the buffalo. And mm-hmm. I thought about that in, in the sense of, you know, as Lakota people, as Ocheri Shakoween people, we really, we had a, a deep relationship with bison. And so mm-hmm. that was a clue to me that food is always more important than it seems. You know, food mm-hmm. isn't just, we, I think contemporarily, you know, fast food and all of these different things, um, we just have a very distant relationship to the food that we eat. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it's still very powerful. And I think that the control of food um, and the way that people are able to access or not access it is is a critical um, element of whether or not a community can thrive. And so there's kind of a slow food movement going on across the world um, and in Native communities, this returning to indigenous foods. Um, but also, you know, talking about how that works in contemporary settings because we, we can't necessarily go back in time. Mm-hmm. But what is our relationship to creating space for our traditional foods in contemporary settings and for maintaining that connection to um, growing our own food and harvesting our own food? And so, you know, to me, food is very political. Um, and I was so intrigued by um, everybody has a story about food, mm-hmm. you know, their family, their community. Huh. It's the great connector, it's a universal component of people's lives so this is fascinating now my only regret is that uh, we're recording this segment toward the end of an exhibit period and i know ultimately shortly after we finish this segment they're going to chase us out of here but just in talking with you we're here to talk about the first people's fund mm-hmm. but it sounds like you've got a wealth of information that that my guests would enjoy hopefully maybe sometime whether it's here in this venue or not we'd be able to get you behind the mic and talk some about the connections with food, and and uh, especially in Indian country, and how that impacts everything, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, that would be wonderful. I'd, I would love to. But we've got to segue right now back to the First Peoples Fund, because folks, uh, some of them like me, an organization that's been around, as you shared with us earlier, uh, Cecily, nearly 25 years, right? Mm-hmm. And yet uh, still not on a lot of our radar screens. Mm-hmm. 
you mentioned having a variety of projects in Indian country, eight or ten, did I, I mm-hmm. hear you say that? What would be some examples of things that you're involved with? So, you know, we originally started out as a donor advised fund through the Tides Foundation. Um, and our founder, Jennifer Easton, she was the embodiment of generosity. And she was really dedicated to showcasing the diversity that she saw in Native artists, um, you know, ranging all across the nation and really wanting to uh, kind of recognize the power of art in all its varied forms mm-hmm. to impact narratives in deep and understanding. Mm-hmm. And so the organization has really stayed true to that and in um, how it's grown. So some of the earliest work that we had um, were, were providing individual grants to artists. Oh, okay. And, and, and we, we say, you know, we provide um, support from folks from Maine to Maui. You know, okay. and so literally, literally, okay, literally. So you know, we have we have um, we're we're a national organization, mm-hmm. uh, but we do have a lot of work that's where we're headquartered in South Dakota mm-hmm. because we have a lot of different pilot projects there. Okay, but our grants are nationwide, um, and we select about twenty five different uh, fellows every year, and we have two categories. One is artist and business leadership, so mm-hmm. folks who are really looking to expand and invest in the um, business aspect of their of their artwork and kind of take their artwork to that next level. Mm-hmm. And then we also have cultural capital. Um, and those are the folks that are doing those really essential uh, kind of carrying on particular traditions and preserving certain things um, that are doing that kind of work, but still need the support to, to carry that out. Um, so that's one of our oldest, oldest programs. We also have the Community Spirit Awards. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of the heart of our work, uh-huh. the core of what we do. Um, and it, the way that those go is that someone nominates someone from their community who okay. they feel have just selflessly given of themselves throughout mm-hmm. their lives mm-hmm. in passing on traditions and carrying on the legacy of, you know, whether that's language or weaving or um, wh- whatever that might be for them, carrying those traditions on, just sharing their gifts with others in the community mm-hmm. so that others can learn and, and carry that on. Um, and we honor f- about four people a year. We've honored more in the past, but it's usually around four people every year. And we've honored nearly a hundred different people from tribal communities all across wow, the nation. Wow, wow. Um, so those are kind of our two oldest and most recognized. Now, one of, th- one of the big questions, um, Cecily, that always comes up when we speak about artists, mm-hmm. how broad, in, you know, are, are you using that term? I mean, is it? musicians is it uh, more hands-on uh, uh, media what kind of things do you include under that umbrella of art that's a great question actually especially when you're talking about native communities because you know in a lot of our native languages there is no word for art and so a lot of folks don't actually readily identify as artists per mm-hmm. se you know they're like oh this is just me doing what i do i just mm-hmm. do beadwork because mm-hmm. that's I, you know i learned to do that or um we, we also talk about culture bears you know there's people who might Artists and culture bearers are the folks that we support. And it's those carrying on of different traditions in different ways. So when you hear that, you might think, oh, well, it's only super traditional art forms. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Because we know that any artwork where there's um, you know, somebody from an indigenous community creating that work, it's going to be uh, inherently embedded with, with who we are. Mm-hmm. You know, Art is so connected to everything that we mm-hmm. do. And so... Um, our range, really, you know, speaking of food, as we did earlier, okay. um, we had our first food fellow 
Sean Sherman, the sous chef, was one of our uh. fellows in 2015. Um, and then we have everything from hip-hop artists like Frank Wong and Mike Jordan. Um, we also have spoken word artists like uh, Tanaya Winder. Um, we have folks who do weaving. You know, we have uh, basket weavers from Alaska. We have, um, you know, hula, uh, hula practitioners from Hawaii. Uh, wow. I mean, just all across the board, uh-huh, photographers. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, so there's a really, really wide range of folks. And part of that is is rooted in our founders' belief of really showcasing the wide diversity of indigenous art um, across the United States and getting to kind of represent that there are, you know, nearly 600 different tribes ju- just in, in the area that we call the United States mm-hmm. and that they're all unique in their own ways. And and so, yeah, the, the range is very broad, um, but we find that when we bring all of these different folks together from different communities and different mediums, there's a common connection between them all. And it's pretty powerful to experience that. So someone's been tuning in today to American Indian Living. They're listening to what you're sharing, Cecily, and they're saying, wow, well, I'm an artist. I could use help. I mean, are we looking for people who might be in that capacity? Or are you saying, look, at this point, we've got plenty of people that we're helping. We just need some people who might want to contribute, might want to uh, help us on the funding end of things? Are you looking for both? What what are you hoping to accomplish here, for example, at this conference? So um, we, of course, are always looking for support. That's, that's, you know, we're an arts organization and a Native organization, and both of those spaces often don't get, you know, a ton of attention in that capacity. So we're always looking for more support. Um, But as far as building out the, you know, our First Peoples Fund family, um, we are always interested in, in working with more artists. We mm. do have a lot of intention in creating deeper relationships and communities that we've worked in. Good. Um, and so not just, you know, a lot of times where we'll have, say, a Community Spirit Award honoree, we'll get to know more people from that and grow. Um, but absolutely, you know, if folks are interested in applying for our fellowships, they can go to our website, www.firstpeoplesfund.org, um, and we have an application period every year where folks can apply. There's a list of all the documents you need, letters of reference, things mm-hmm. like that. But we also offer Native Artist Professional Development trainings all across the nation really? as well. Yep. Excellent. And that's a values-based training where the first day people kind of go through and talk about their values. And then the remainder of it, the second day, is really figuring out from those values how you're going to build your business plan. Tremendous. Unfortunately, our time has slipped away from us, Cecily. If you just uh, caught that website flying by, it's first peoplesfund.org. We've got more segments coming up in today's edition, but we have to step away. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We've got some important announcements coming up. Then we'll be back with more from the National Congress of American Indians. We'll be right back in two minutes. I'm Dr. David DeRose. You're listening to American Indian Living. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. 
For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Emergency medical unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're continuing our dialogues from the venue of the National Congress of American Indians here in Denver, Colorado. And across from me is another person who's making a huge difference in Indian country, and a huge to me, because Jeff Schuler has an amazing story. Jeff, I'm so glad you're with us. Thank you very much. So am I. <laughs> We've been doing this uh, screening event, so I say we because I'm part of uh, a group with American Indian Living Magazine, American Indian Living Radio, and then the screening booths. Uh, the Seventh-day Adventist Church sponsors all those things, and For many years, they've had the screening events at the National Congress. Yesterday, someone made sure that you and I got acquainted, and you told me an amazing story about the conference one year ago in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Correct. Tell us a little bit about why that was so life-changing, if you will. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I've always been an athlete and, 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 and a bigger guy. I, I played football at, uh, University of California, Berkeley and, and, uh, always, always was around 270 pounds, 280 pounds. And, uh, so I, I, I went through a divorce in my life and, and, um, started eating more, drinking more. Um, and I got up to 400 and something pounds. Wow. And so, I had constant sweats all day long, um, you know, get up. And I, I knew at some point during the day I'd sweat for at least 15, 20 minutes, whether I was hot or not. I don't know why, but mm-hmm. that that was my pattern. So I, I decided to stop by um, and get my blood pressure taken. And so I sit down and they, they did my uh, diabetes test and said, oh, you know, this looks high. You need to go into 
see a doctor and and then they did my blood pressure and they said hey we can't let you leave and i was like well you you can't keep me here you know <laughs> and they're like well we, we really don't want to let you leave and because my blood pressure was so high and and you know so i got up and i i left and as i was walking away i this this fear came over me and it was like mm. i could drop dead right now of a heart attack and mm. and again i started to sweat and instead of going on with the conference i went back to my room and i just kind of laid there and i was like wondering if i was going to have a heart attack and Wow. And so uh, I decided at that point that um, that's it. I'm done. I'm not drinking anymore. I'm going on a diet, the whole deal. And, and today's one year for me. One uh, year. One year exactly today, October 23rd. So do you remember what your pressure was a year ago? It was 180, 192 over 132. Wow. Yeah. That, that's, those are serious numbers. They were, they, you know, I didn't know at a time what serious was, but I do now. And, and when you said you were glad to have me here, I, I truly meant I am glad to be here because with those kind of numbers and the way I felt back then, which I didn't realize how I felt until now I know how I feel today, uh-huh. uh, I'm glad to be here. So you basically made a complete break with the alcoholic beverages. Uh, um, alcohol and I haven't, um, cheated on my diet with a tussie roll. Okay. So so you really got serious about the diet. You got the alcohol out of the program. I mean, is it fair to ask you how much you were drinking? I mean, any estimate on that? Yeah. I, you know, I, I mean, honestly, you you know, I, I, uh, would say four nights a week, you know, and, and, you know, it wasn't beer anymore. I had a couple, um, vodkas and, and, that got you drunk and that did what Mm. apparently I needed it to do was put me in a mindset that I thought was better. And, and, you know, a year ago, you know, a year ago to today, I know the better mindset and that is to be healthy and, and wake up every morning happy and, and ready to go instead of, you know, doom and gloom. And that's really where I was. And I didn't realize it. Now I'm a pretty good judge of weight. Uh, I, you and I are sitting down together, but when we were standing up, maybe I'd guess maybe around 6'3". Is that a good guess? Yeah, 6'3". Okay. Yeah. And, but it doesn't look right now that you're weighing anywhere near 400 pounds. No, no. So your weight has, you've dropped some pounds? Um, I, my last weight when I weighed was 264. Um, I was hoping to hit well, actually, my my first goal was 300, but then uh-huh. when I when I went past that, then I said, "Well, uh, you know, let's try 260." And uh-huh. so a week ago, I weighed I was 264, and then I was going to weigh it a day and see if I got down to my 260. But uh-huh. you know, it wasn't important. I felt so good. It was like I, you know, I don't even care if I weigh 260. Tremendous. It's, yeah. Now let me see if I'm if we can do the math together here. How much did you weigh a year ago when you went to the screening? Um, well, when I I didn't weigh here, I went I weighed to the doctor when I went back to the doctor, and uh-huh. I weighed four hundred four pounds. So, do you mean to tell me you've lost like a hundred and forty pounds in the last year? In a year, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah it's incredible. And I, uh, did you go to the screening this year? I, I went just to do my blood pressure and and my diabetes i guess to show off i don't know uh, how, how was how was the blood pressure it was great it was uh i, I think it was 125 over 82 well, you know, and that's I, because the doctor put you on a bunch of medicines too uh you know the doctor put me on blood pressure pills a year ago uh-huh. and she took me off them two months ago isn't that tremendous yeah it is i just love your story i mean it's so <laughs> exciting it's exciting for me yeah and my kids. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Well, and what's so tremendous is a lot of people think, you know, they see these screening events. And, and like I said, we're pretty much a fixture at the National Congress events. 
And I'm sure there's a lot of folks who say, you know, what's the, you know, I, I got a doctor back home, but you actually took the step of kind of sticking your neck out a little bit a year ago because there was probably some inkling that things might not have been all that good, right? Well, when I went to the doctor um, after the test, mm-hmm. it was the first time I'd been to the doctor in 18 years. Wow. So, um, but, when I walked by and and saw that, it was just kind of like, well, maybe they could tell me a little bit about <laughs> where I'm at or give me a little bit of encouragement or something because right. I knew I was in a bad place at 400 and something pounds. Right, I, right. I've lost 14 sizes on my waist and, and all that. So, um, But when they said they were going to keep me there, I mean, that was more motivation than I thought I was going <laughs> to get. But, yeah, <laughs> I took it. <laughs> okay. So you – but – in spite of all that was going on over the last however many years, you've been in a very responsible position in Indian country, right? I have. So tell us a little bit about what you do and why you actually end up at National Congress meetings. Well, I, I work for California Tribal TANF Partnership, and, and I'm, I'm the director of that program. And, and um, you know, it, it's, it's a program where we, we deal with... Um, Poverty and 200% of the poverty guideline is, is, is the people that we work with. And, you know, it, they need motivation like I needed motivation, which mm. is, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're leading the company or you're, you're a participant. We all need some sort of motivation somewhere. And, and so we've really been expanding. We're working with tribal health now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, this really woke me up and it's uh-huh. like, you know, hey, if they can get me going. So we're, we've been doing diabetes workshops with tribal health and, and looking at, um, different ways to get involved with working with the tribal health in the different counties and actually talking to you. Uh, you mentioned you're coming up to Lake County and we, right. we've we got somebody in common that we've been working with who currently we're running a diabetes workshop. So um, it, it, there's a lot of uh, really exciting things going on in Indian country. And I think that the biggest part of it is um, people collaborating together and coming together and, and putting their dollars together to to work for the right reasons. So, yeah, that's why I'm here at NCAI, and, and we've always um, get a good response with TANF, and we, we, we're excited. So TANF, of course, uh, for many listeners, they're native, whether they're listening on a reservation, whether they're urban, TANF's a household word for them. We have a lot of non-native listeners. So help us understand really just what, first of all, it's an acronym, right, T-A-N-F, and what does that stand for? It's temporary assistance for needy families, and actually what what we are is tribal TANF. So back in 1995, um, or 2005, actually, I'm sorry, we've been around for 16 years, 17 years now, um, the federal government decided that they would let um, Native tribes run their own um, TANF programs. So TANF is actually welfare for the state, and um, so what they did was they took dollars that went to the state to run uh, to uh, help Native Americans, and they gave it to different tribes that applied for it. So over the last 16 years, we've been catching up with infrastructure, all those kind of things, but um, we have caught up, and, and we are helping our people better because we understand them better, and, and, you know, we're adding culture, and we have culture, and we have, you know, a lot of different different things that, that we do that we're um, involved with, with with our Native people, and, and it, it's really turned into a great program. One of the things that you and I were comparing notes about before we started recording is the interest that, that we have at American Indian Living of making an impact. And some of our team is actually working with one of the, really it's a key determinant of 
financial security, and that's physical health. You know, a lot of people don't always connect those dots, but if a person's not healthy, they can't work. If they're not mentally healthy, they can't hold a job. Their you know, family's not going to be stable. And so we've been partnering with a number of tribes, actually sharing resources, giving kind of motivational services, you know, speaking in different venues. Like we were talking about, I'm scheduled to be speaking at an event there in, uh, in Lake County and I think it's coming up in a month or so, a diabetes walk. Hopefully we'll get to rub yeah, shoulders yeah, yeah. together. Come by. Yeah. But, um, you know, the point is we're getting a, a message out where it's ironic to me. I'll be honest with you, Jeff, because in Indian country, people historically have looked at things so holistically, whereas in kind of the Western mindset, everything gets siloed. This is the mental, this is spiritual, that's physical, and yet... Often because of the governmental systems that are involved, a lot of these services don't get integrated. So I'm excited for what you're doing with TANF in Northern California because I hear you saying, hey, we're reaching out to tribes. We're looking at these health endpoints, and we're going to make a difference there. Yeah, and, and I think that my experience has helped me a lot. We, we had already known that it's hard to get people in the door, but I got myself in the door and the integrated services and I've been taking advantage of them all. So that's what we're trying to do for our people. Tremendous stuff. Okay. we got to step away. We've got a break coming up. I'm Dr. David DeRose, Jeff Schuler, Executive Director of California Tribal Partnership, TANF. We'll be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. Don't you go away. Stay tuned. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke. Sudden weakness on one side or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So, whether it's around your neighborhood... Or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute, since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. 
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back for our second half of today's edition of American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose with Cecily Engelhart. She is actually back with us here in our virtual studio in Denver, Colorado, at the National Congress of American Indians. Cecily, I'm so glad you could pull away again and join us. Thank you so much. Uh, one of my big regrets is I thought, well, here's someone who can share with us about a great organization, the First People's Fund, but I did not realize what a wealth of information you had about food and media and some of these relationships and how they affect people in Indian country. And as I was interviewing Jeff, Jeff Schuler, in my last segment, I was just thinking, boy, it would be wonderful to get Cecily back and it just so happened you were still faithfully at your post of duty here in the exhibit hall, and you had a great team. They were willing to sacrifice you for a little bit of time to join us back behind the mic. So thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. For those who may just be joining us, they haven't been with us maybe from the beginning of the show, tell us a little bit about this interesting connection, because you're the first one. I'm going to be honest with you. You're the first person I've ever met who went to school and had a special emphasis in food and how it interrelated with media. So, so tell us a little bit more about that background. I mean, I think, to be honest, it probably comes from my, my grandmother's, mm -hmm. um, because my, my grandmother was a nurse. Um, she was a dietitian for about 30 years for Indian Health Services, and uh, then she became the tribal chairwoman, the first tribal chairwoman of our tribe, Yankton Sioux Tribe. And, um, you know, my, my other grandmother was from Pine Ridge, and she went into um, education. And, wow. and so she was a speech language therapist and, and, you know, so seeing kind of their, uh, trajectories and especially thinking about, um, you know, my, my grandmother who went into education had a thyroid problem mm -hmm. and I have a thyroid problem. Mm -hmm. And then my other grandmother was a dietitian, um, had health issues towards the end of her life. And so there was all of these different, both personal and professional elements to kind of um, observing them and their trajectories and then thinking about the, my own path in life um, and thinking about food and my health and the health that I had observed in other Native folks, you know, struggling with different things as far as diabetes, you know, the whole, the whole range of things. So I had a particular interest in trying to get to the real... Um, bits and pieces of, you know, we hear a lot. Yes, we have, you know, high rates of diabetes, high rates of this, this, this. Mm -hmm. But those are not inherent to who we are as Native people, mm -hmm. right? That's right. So where is that coming from? Why is there a prevalence? And there's a lot of different theories on that related to food. And um, I do think that media and our the portrayal of Native people and narratives about Native people huh. also similarly contribute to that. So... This is really interesting. One of the things that got me so interested in this topic, uh, Cecily, I'll just tell you, was um, my own work in Oklahoma. So I was based in Oklahoma for about 11 years, and I helped uh, open up a center where we especially work with diabetes. Mm -hmm. And so we were dealing with a lot of First Nation peoples from all over the country, actually, even though we were there in Oklahoma. We ran residential programs. People would come, and they'd actually live in our facilities for usually a couple weeks. And we'd help them really change the whole course of their, their diabetes, get off their 
insulin, two-thirds of the people that came on insulin who had type 2 diabetes were able to get off. So just having these amazing results. And as I started working closer with Native American people, I'll be honest with you. I'm not, I don't have native roots myself. I grew up in an urban environment. It was in an era where it was not popular for people to say that they were even native. Mm-hmm. So I don't even remember meeting a person who said they were Native American mm-hmm. for many years. And like I said, I'm in urban areas in the New York City area when uh, I was invited to come out to Oklahoma and open this facility. So as I started working with indigenous peoples, and started actually to see some of the data that's even in the medical literature. Um, I remember going to uh, the Indian Hospital in Phoenix, and they were sharing with me data going back to 1900, virtually no diabetes Mm -hmm. among the Pima people Mm -hmm. that are there in in that part of the, the country. And then looking at data, knowing that this is one of the most heavily afflicted tribal communities in the world. You know, so just like you said, this is not native heritage. This is something that European contact brought into the equation. And like you're saying, I mean, how did that happen? A lot of people say, well, you know, First Nation peoples were moved under reservations. They were, you know, taken away from their indigenous dietary practices. They were given commodity foods. I mean, all that's important. But you're adding a different part to the narrative that I'm being honest, I haven't heard before. Well, I mean, I think part of it is, you know, we have this understanding that everything is related, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's important when we're thinking about how we tackle different issues because, of course, food is a component of that. Mm-hmm. And and there's evidence that changes in our diet are, they, they contribute and exas- can exacerbate our health issues, right? But, you know, um, and this is kind of early in the in these studies of epigenetics and things like mm-hmm. that. You know, Native people, we have this concept of um, blood memory and and. Mm-hmm passing things on and and so I was also interested in that aspect of it um so yes some of it is situational what's in your surroundings um as far as food and access to food and and all of that Mm -hmm. but I think part of it is also um when you're the the intense trauma that native people have survived and the inherited uh survival and and so so for instance this is getting kind of into the weeds here but well that's what we want okay (laughs) so for instance um you know when we talk about things like homeostasis for for humans you know that's maintaining all of your regular functions just sitting in like we are now you Mm -hmm. know no stress no whatever but then there's this um state of being called allostasis and that is when you are maintaining all of your bodily functions but under a high stress Mm -hmm. and so that's like you know you see you see a lion you know, mm-hmm. your bodily functions are maintained, but there is this level of stress that is raised and all of these things happen in your body. So when people are undergoing trauma, and this is just from my own studies, I'm by no means an expert, but uh-huh. it's something I'm very interested in. Um, having high stress in that capacity and maintaining that over time, it's very different from maintaining homeostasis. Mm-hmm. There's the adrenal exhaustion from that. There's trauma that gets, I believe, you know, passed down, um, and, and, you know, imagine being pregnant or, or no, raising right. a child or becoming a father or any of those situations with that high rate of stress. And so those, you know, from what I've studied, contribute to things like diabetes, mm-hmm. to thyroid problems, to all of these different things that have kind of disrupted the health of Native people. And so 
yes, some of it is food, but some of it is also the stress of, uh, of the trauma of, of colonization, right? Mm -hmm. And so how we're viewed, the narratives about us, what we know about ourselves and tell ourselves, the stories that we tell ourselves um, and that other people tell about us. I think those are really powerful and contribute to our well-being in a way that, yes, we understand it can be painful emotionally, but it has an impact, I believe, on, on our biology. And so, you know, I was just having this conversation with a coworker of mine about healing. You know, if, if what's possible in one generation of trauma? What's possible in one generation of healing? Because we have this strength, mm. we have this resiliency. Mm -hmm. And so kind of changing our focal point um, in understanding how do we move forward in healing ourselves because that's that can be really radically transformational for how how we raise our children not only in practice but in physical transference to, mm -hmm. to me that's that's kind of how i view it so what i find so fascinating is we're talking about really stress and our mental perception of who we are and how that affects things so much you have this special interest in looking at media. One of uh, the fellows that I've often rubbed shoulders with at National Congress, he's not here uh, at this particular event, a guy by the name of Fred Rogers, who's Cherokee. Fred has been on the show a number of times. He runs diabetes camps for kids and does a variety of things in Indian country. But Fred uh, and I have done some community programs together. And I remember Fred telling his story, how when he grew up, even though he was Native American, when they played cowboys and Indians, he wanted to be a cowboy. Yeah. And that really kind of speaks to this media influence, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about that. So what do you think has happened in the First Nation psyche because of these portrayals of Native Americans historically? Well, to be honest, at this moment in time, I feel like it's a really exciting time to, to be alive because we're seeing so many stories being told by Native people mm. and it makes such a difference in mm -hmm. in narrative, in depth, in in everything. And so I think there's a real power in being able to tell your own story and see other people that resonate with other people. Mm -hmm. Um and, you know, media is such a powerful element mm -hmm. in our lives and, and especially now in a digital age where we interact with media constantly. Mm -hmm. Um in whatever forms, you know, there's that phrase, you, you go online to either solve a problem or be entertained, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so either way, if you're asking a question, you know, solving a problem, you know, making an inquiry about Native people or seeking entertainment that has anything to do with Native people, there's going to be particular narratives that are tied to that. And so when you have more indigenously created media, the range and depth changes so dramatically mm -hmm. you know it doesn't fall into these old story patterns it acknowledges elements of those stories mm -hmm. but in a way that gives it the human experience and so you know i i really feel like in relation to food and health there's such strong narratives of well they have, if they only if they ate better if they would quit eating bad food if they uh. quit eating bad, they would be healthy and it's like okay, yeah, you know, we can eat better. That's one element, but it makes it a very individualized personal problem mm. rather than understanding that this is a community issue, not just for Native people, but, you know, across across the nation and across the world. Uh -huh. I think that when we individualize, hyper-individualize, 
problems that are shared among people, mm-hmm. um, we neglect to understand the conditions that create those issues. Mm. Um, and so, as far as our food and media go, food, there, I combine them into one. <laughs> as far as that goes, um, I think those are two things that are shared between so many people. You uh-huh. share food. Um, you know, that food is the great connector mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, and so is media. Mm-hmm. So for me, there's kind of a natural marriage there mm. in talking about, you know, how we move to being healthier as a people and as individuals. I think it has to be a collective element. And like you're saying with the gentleman who lost 140 pounds mm-hmm. and had this great transformation, yeah, he did that. On, you know, the, he deserves a lot of recognition for making that commitment and doing that work. But it also came from this community of, hey, find this information here. You know, so, you know, doctors will say things like, well, you need to lose weight. Well, thank you, Captain Obvious. That's wonderful (laughs) Uh for you to say that. But what does that have to do with my daily life? Hmm. You know, it's very hard for people to access that because your daily life isn't necessarily shaped to keep you in the best health. Right, right. It's fast paced. It's busy. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not patient. You know, the world is not patient for us. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, I definitely feel like health and well-being is a group effort. <laughs> I love so much about what you're talking about. And we're going to bring this all together back to the First Peoples Fund because really you're talking about artists and, and different forms of media. Right now we do have to step away. I'm talking with Cecily Engelhart. She's going to stay by. We're going to tie this all together. Some amazing personal success stories. How does that relate to your community? How does it relate to the arts? Really, it's all connected. If you don't see the big picture, that's coming up in our next segment. Don't go away. I'm Dr. DeRose. We'll be back with more right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand. And someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, 
Doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living Radio. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We are here winding up another segment from the National Congress of American Indians here in Denver, Colorado. And I have the good fortune of still having Cecily Engelhardt across from me. She is the communications manager for the First People's Fund. Cecily, we've been talking about some great stuff because as a physician, I mean, I know this dynamic. Uh, As you put it, we individualize problems, but these are shared problems. And as a result, we're not looking at some of the conditions that are actually creating those issues and perpetuating those problems. I think this is so on point. And so just as an example, we're here at the National Congress. You and I were speaking a little bit at the break. Uh, Tomorrow there's an event called Partnering for the Health of All Native Nations. And, of course, people listening to this show, they're not going to be able to to, uh, to run and come in tomorrow for it because this is a pre-recorded show. It'll be airing some months from now. But what's interesting to me about this is it's really talking about this very same point. How do we engage communities? Uh, for example, you mentioned the example of diabetes or obesity. Instead of villainizing the person, you know, saying, why aren't you doing this? I told you to lose weight. You know, why haven't you lost the weight, okay? If you're not going to listen to me, then why haven't come to the clinic? Uh, thankfully, I don't think I've ever done that. <laughs> but I know it happens because I see patients who tell me the stories. And uh, the point is we have to start looking at how am I as a physician in that community contributing to the problem, right? What, what am I not doing yeah. at a community level? So. You deal with the First People's Fund. You're the communications director. And I know we talked some about your organization in the first segment. But help us again catch a glimpse of that organization and then help us connect the dots as to how that ultimately relates to what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think a really perfect example would be, um, and I mentioned him earlier when we spoke, spoke was um, Sean Sherman, the sous chef. His food is completely indigenous. It's uh, wherever he cooks, he finds the the food that's indigenous to that region and cooks with that. And when you know he's in our homelands where he's from, you know that food is you know grain free, dairy free, sugar free, complete you know very whole foods mm-hmm. based, right? And it's interesting, you know, he, uh, over time, I interviewed him in 2014 for my thesis project. Uh And it was kind of early in him setting out to kind of create what has become this very well-known and identified um, brand and and identity of food and thinking about food, the way way that he thinks about it. And so I, I think... Seeing that kind of evolution of his and getting to this point where he, he does a lot of talks when he either caters or does an event or, mm-hmm. or things like that, talking about food's relationship to our identity and history as Native people and 
He's also one of First People's Funds fellows. He was our first food fellow. Mm -hmm. um, and looking at the artistry and history and, and culture that is in our food and, and um, how that's carried on. And so for me, thinking about food in that form, um, everyone has that, no, ma no matter your background, has a relationship to, you know, a family member's food or a community member's food, right? So-and-so mm -hmm. made the best this, right, so-and-so right, made right. the best that. Whether it's potato salad or spring rolls or whatever it is, mm -hmm. there's a whole range, right, of um, connection that I think is kind of universal in relationship to food. And so being able to recognize that and the artistry in that and the um, carrying and the... Uh, carrying on of knowledge that that's inherent in um, learning about our traditional foods is is so powerful um, and so I really appreciate that element and that kind of opening up of first people's fund being able to recognize that and mm -hmm. having him be the first person who um, focuses on food and now we have other fellows who are doing the same thing um, Lisa Ironcloud is a current fellow and I love, I love seeing her posts on Facebook. Uh -huh. You know, everything from making uh, Team Sila flour, uh, Team Sila's uh, prairie turnips. Uh -huh. um, they're packed with protein. They were uh -huh. food that I studied when I was in school. Uh -huh. um, so most like, but you know, they can be very starchy like potatoes. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what people think of. Team Sila is not like that. It's packed with protein. Mm. Um, you can dry it, you know, that kind of thing. So getting uh -huh. to see Lisa carry on this knowledge, it is an art form mm -hmm. in and of itself. And so um, I really respect First People's Fund for that. And it, it, it's part of the reason that I work for the organization because they can see the, the value in um, recognizing the artistry and, and the culture and the history that's in so many different things that Native mm -hmm. people already do every day. I, I love this picture because what you're saying is that in your own indigenous roots, you have a heritage that you can be proud of. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not just a health issue. Like you said, it's a cultural issue. It's artistry. It's, it's who you are as a person. And what it's doing as you move to more of these plant foods, these indigenous foods, you're improving your health. You're lowering your risk of diabetes and, and high blood pressure and obesity. So I mean, I think it's an incredible narrative. And for those who, who didn't catch it, First People's Fund is actually literally funding people like this in, in different dimensions of Native arts, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So what does that look like? Do you underwrite someone's uh, projects for a year? Mm -hmm. Is there a period of time? So they're annual fellowships. Mm -hmm. um, and people can apply and reapply. Okay. Um, and we definitely encourage people, if you, you know, if you don't get in on the first round, to continue applying. And we always, you know, folks don't get in. They mm -hmm. can always call us and ask for feedback about oh, nice. what would make their, their application stronger. Just because we get so many applicants. Uh -huh. um, and, it, I mean, it is so incredible because, as I was mentioning earlier, we have such a range of art, um, arts mediums and, and, you know, everything, like I was saying, from Lisa, who is making Team Sila flower, to, um, you know, somebody doing basket weaving mm -hmm. in Alaska, mm -hmm. to someone doing hip-hop, you know, to someone doing beadwork, quillwork, whatever it is, mm -hmm. there's this incredible range of artists, and then they all are coming from different nations. Mm -hmm. 
you know, we're all coming from our, our home nations and bringing everyone together in this room and having that sense of connectivity. It, it's so phenomenal to me. Uh-huh. It's really, it's, it gets me choked up, but I, I won't cry. But, um, it, it's really powerful to see that there's such a shared sense of, um, I think it's the values that people carry uh-huh. to, to me. That's the perception, you know, first people's fund, we have our set of values that we, that we operate on as an organization. And I think when you get people into a room, um, with those values in mind, and, and they're bringing that forward, no matter where you come from, you know, what, na- you, you know, uh, Native nation you're from or what arts form you practice, there's this connectivity that happens. And a lot of people share these same experiences of feeling, I'm in my community doing this particular art form and I feel very isolated for these reasons, or it's hard for me to reach the markets I want, or it's difficult for me because I can see our um, traditional plants starting to you know, become more scarce, you know, so there's all of these different elements that connect to everything from, you know, concerns about environmental issues to tribal sovereignty to all of these different things come together through the artists, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and I I definitely don't think artists to be, they're often underestimated as far as their contributions. And Uh um, if there's folks out there who are interested in strengthening their, their art form, um, I think First People's Fund is a great place to do that. So tell us again, Cecily, how someone would connect with you folks. So you can connect with us a number of ways. Um, if you're interested in learning about our programs, I would definitely suggest going to our website, www.firstpeoplesfund.org. And um, you can also, if you want to kind of get updates on us, go there, join our mailing list. Mm-hmm. And that's a monthly uh, newsletter that we send out. And then additionally, we're on all social media. Okay. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we're on all of those. Um, we post our trainings. We have Native Artist Professional Development trainings all across the nation. Uh-huh. So if folks are wondering if there's a training near them, they can get on social media and see what we have coming up. So mm-hmm. that's that's a great resource Very there. Very nice. So firstpeoplesfund.org. Yes. So if you're uh, an artist or if you know a Native artist and you're maybe listening today and you haven't connected some of these dots together, but anything that increases someone's sense of worth, sense of personal value, sense of culture, what I really hear us saying, Cecily, is if we're interested in healthy communities in Indian country, we have to be interested in the arts. We have to be interested in culture. We have to be interested, as others have said, in indigenous language Mm -hmm. and really all of these things come full circle when we realize maybe part a big part of some of the problems we face in indian country is because of the false narratives that have been told right Mm -hmm. wow our time has slipped away you've been a great guest thank you so much for starting the show and concluding it for us thank you so much for having me we do have to run i'm dr david derose with me has been cecily Engelhart with the First People's Fund, firstpeoplesfund.org. We've got to go. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.